All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're listening to Daily Truth. A part of the problem in the evangelical church today, and I might add particularly among Baptists, is that we are so individualistic, atomistic, we have no theological framework for corporate truths, for corporate realities. We don't think in terms of covenant. We don't think in terms of collections. We don't think in terms of groups. We don't think in terms of generations. We merely think in terms of individual people and their individual choices. And that's the problem. Now, because I am a Baptist, I do think in terms of individuals, at least in one sense. And that one sense, again, is in terms of the new covenant. I believe that the new covenant is a covenant of grace, not just one particular administration of a larger banner of the covenant of grace, but that the new covenant is synonymous with the covenant of grace. It is the covenant of grace, and it is therefore the only eternally saving covenant, and that that particular covenant is established with individual people. Put that aside for a moment. All the rest of my thinking is covenantal. All the rest of my thinking my theological thinking, political thinking, cultural thinking, is corporate. And I think that the problem, if I might be so bold to say, with my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, is that they attempt to stretch the new covenant to encompass every single scenario that we could possibly think of. Christian nationalism, let me just stretch that new covenant. A mere Christendom, let's stretch it a little bit further. Now, the problem with Baptists is that Baptists pretend as though they won't stretch the new covenant. They're very committed to the new covenant being only what it's meant to be. And I agree in that sense. But I disagree with my Baptist brothers in the sense that although I think they have the proper view of the new covenant, The problem is that they pretend that that's the only covenant that currently exists. They think that there's a new covenant that has been established by Christ, with Christ appointed by God as the federal head, the representative, the head of this covenant, and it's with individuals, and the only access, the entrance, the door into this new covenant is union with Christ, which comes by the power of the Spirit, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Him alone. And to all that, I would say a hearty yes and amen. But then the Baptist stops. 
And if you talk about a nation being in covenant with God, the Baptist says, "Uh uh-uh, no such thing as a Christian nation. No such thing as a Christian seminary. No such thing as a Christian school. No such thing as Christian art or Christian science. In fact, there's not even such a thing as a Christian family. Not so long as you have young children, especially infants. You can only be a Christian family if your children are grown up and each of them have made a credible profession of faith. Now to that, I would say that Baptists are stupid. That is foolish. Absolute insanity. Baptists are foolish. So I don't think that we need to use the new covenant and rearrange its theological parameters and definitions in order to account for a Christian family or a Christian school or a Christian culture or a Christian nation. I think that we can simply speak of other covenants. And here's the one example that I would provide. And I think all I need is one in order to make my case. One covenant that I would provide as an example would be marriage. Is marriage a contract or is it a covenant? I'm talking about human marriage between one biological man, a.k.a. one man, you shouldn't even have to say biological, and one woman. This is not merely an arrangement, a civil arrangement, a business contract, but according to Scripture, it is a covenant. My next question would be this, that in the case of two Christians who are married, in this marriage covenant, should it be viewed as a Christian covenant? Do you have a Christian marriage? Or is it a neutral covenant? Is it a neutral marriage in which you simply seek to live out Christian faithfulness, but in a non-Christian marriage? I would say that those are categories that seem to have to be forced in to the biblical narrative. They seem foreign within the realm of Scripture. If you are a Christian and you're married, you have a Christian marriage. In fact, I'll see your point and raise you one further. According to the Apostle Paul, you don't even need two Christians in the marriage to make it a Christian marriage. That just one will suffice. In fact, even further, according to the Apostle Paul, who I might add was a big fan of patriarchy, you could actually have even the woman who is not actually head of the marriage being a Christian and her husband not being a Christian, and it would still be a Christian marriage. So much so that the fruit of the marriage, namely children, would be holy. And for the record, in terms of what it means for children to be holy, I do not believe, I'll at least tell you what I don't believe, I don't believe that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the children are holy in the sense that the children are legitimate 
there are some who, their position is that Paul is merely saying that, that if you have a marriage with at least one Christian spouse, that this makes the marriage legitimate and therefore the children are legitimate. Well, that can't be what the Apostle Paul is saying because if it is, then in any marriage that has zero Christians, like a marriage between two atheists or a marriage between two Muslims, still in terms of biblical marriage, a man and a woman, you would have to say that the children of those marriages are bastards. And I don't believe that that's true. That even children born into a marriage between two Muslims are still legitimate children. And that marriage between two Muslims, man and wife, is a legitimate marriage. A Christian marriage? No. But a legitimate marriage. Because marriage is given as an institution by God, not just to Christian people, but to all people. And so what Paul must mean in terms of the children being holy is not just that the children are legitimate because a marriage between two people with at least one of them being a Christian makes the marriage legitimate and therefore their offspring are legitimate as well. No, I don't believe that's what he's saying. Holy, I'll at least leave you with this to ponder, holy must mean more than that. The children being holy, if that's what he means, legitimate children, then he should have said that the husband can be an unbeliever and the wife can be an unbeliever. But so long as it's a man and a woman joined in marriage, the children are holy. If holy merely means legitimate. But the apostle says, no, there has to at least be one of them that's redeemed. And if one of them is redeemed, that one redeemed spouse is enough to, in a sense, redeem the other so that their offspring and the fruit of that marriage would be redeemed, using redeemed in quotation marks now, but redeemed holy offspring, sanctified offspring. So all this being said, marriage would be an example, not of a contract, not of a mere civil arrangement, but a covenant, and it is not the covenant of works, and it is not the new covenant either. So there are such a thing as covenants outside of those two. So when we think in terms of nations being Christian. We can use covenant theology to encompass that paradigm. Fight by flight. Why leaving godless places is loving godless places. I've had a lot of people tell me recently, Pastor Joel, you're post-millennial. You claim to believe that Jesus is king of every square inch, but apparently you don't think he's king of California because I've heard your personal story that you used to be a pastor there and that you left for the state of Texas. Notice the title, not fight or flight, but fight by flight. Think of the prodigal son. He comes to the end of his rope. He's longing to be fed with the pods given to the pigs. And the parable says, no one gave him anything. No member of the father's house tracked him down to give him a handout. He was hurting. He had to lie in the bed that he had made for himself by his foolish choices. You know what the next words in that parable are? No one gave him anything, and he came to his senses. He began to 
Repent. There are 10 million professing Christians currently living in the state of California. What if they're fighting, but at the same time, while well-intentioned, they're also funding? What if California could be brought to its knees simply by the faithful not fighting there, but leaving there? and forcing Gavin Newsom and other tyrants like him to actually have to take a spoonful of their own medicine. The book has been forwarded by Douglas Wilson. It's been endorsed by Michael Foster. It's good to be a man. Also Meg Basham, The Daily Wire, and Steve Dace from The Blaze Network. It's available on Amazon, as well as a cheaper copy that can be purchased right from our website, which is Right Response Ministries. Dot com. Check it out today.